0: morning. In 1923, a very important business meeting took place with arguably some of the greatest financiers in the world. It was held at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending was Charles Schwab, the steel magnate. How many of you have ever heard of him? Samuel Insull, president of the largest utility company. Howard Hobson, president of the largest gas company. Arthur Cotton, the wor- uh, great, greatest weeks, wheat speculator in the world. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet, Leon Frazier, uh, president of the Bank of International Settlements, Jesse Livermore, the great bear on Wall Street, and Ivar Kruger, head of the most powerful monopoly in the world. So that was 1923. So 25 years later, 25 years later, Charles Schwab had died in bankruptcy, having lived on borrowed money for the last five years before his death. Samuel Insel had died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign land. Howard Hobson was in a mental institution. Arthur Cotton had died abroad insolvent. Richard Whitney had spent time in Sing Sing. Albert Fall had been pardoned so that he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Ivar Kruger, and Leon Frazier had all died by suicide. So what in the world happened? How is that that possible? It's because of ambition in our lives. Here's a picture of them, by the way. This is a picture of all nine of them back in the 20s. Amazing people with incredible ambition. And, well, Pastor Mike, is ambition wrong? No, Pastor, no, it's not wrong. It's great, you all have ambition. It's just that I want to help us protect our lives from always being remembered with an asterisk. How many of you don't want your life to be remembered with an asterisk? Raise your hand. You get to choose now, because you'll choose this every day of your lives. Every day of my life, I choose this, and it's about ambitions, and it's about having self-centered ambitions versus godly ambitions, God-centered ambitions. Again, is there something wrong with ambition? No, there's nothing wrong with ambitions. You all are ambitious. Now, some of you are more ambitious than others. I believe that Christ followers should be the most ambitious people in the earth, in the world. I believe we believe in a God who is incredibly ambitious. God is amazingly ambitious and creative. There's nothing wrong with our ambitions. It's that they can go to the dark side. They can go into the shadow lands. They can go into the places where where they have us rather than us having them. Like in your dating relationship, some of you are dating right now. What are your ambitions with regard to your dating? What is it that's going on? Why are you dating? Who are you dating? What are their characteristics like? What are their character traits like? How many of you work and you have a boss? Raise your hands. You have a boss in your life. Okay, so, like, what are your ambitions towards your boss? How do you carry those out? How do you live in your work world? All of these kinds of things. Uh, Your ambitions for finance and money, was there something inherently wrong with these men wanting to become incredibly wealthy? No. Some of the greatest people in your Bible were incredibly wealthy. Some of the wealthiest people who ever lived are in your Bible, Abraham, David, we're going to look at his story, incredibly ambitious. But why do you want wealth? Why do you want wealth? Like, like, do you want wealth to build the kingdom of God? Do you tithe? Do you give a tenth of your income to support your local church, whether it's here or wherever you go to church? Is, is that what you do? But even then, you have to be careful because tithing is kind of the beginning step of spiritual journey. It's the baby steps of spiritual journey. Generosity goes beyond it. And these men all had this, this troubled soul, and they didn't have clarity with regard to their ambitions. And that's what ultimately caused the rails to fall off of their lives. Those of you who are married, how many of you are married in the room? You're married? So when you tried to correct your spouse this week, Pastor Mike, were you, a, were you listening? You'd be surprised. You were trying to correct your spouse this week. What were your ambitions? What was going on inside of you? What was driving you down inside? What was, what was the driving force behind you? And we're going to look this morning at the, uh, this issue of ambitions and ambitions gone wrong and how we can fight them. Okay, so go with me in your Bibles. Go to the story of Absalom. We're going to look at Absalom. He is a king who takes the kingdom by rebellion. And he does this because his ambitions were broken. Now, I need to set you up for Absalom. I need to, before we read the narrative that we're about to read, because you're going to, I'm going to parachute us all into this passage. I want you to back up, go to chapter 13, verse 1, go to chapter 13, verse 1 in your Bibles. If you're a guest with us, by the way, and you don't have a Bible, uh, you can get one out at the Blue Tent. We really encourage people to bring their Bibles, and you can do it digitally, I don't really care, although I personally need to write in my Bible, I I learn more when I write. Uh, This is why you have notes, by the way, provided for you so you can take notes, because there is going to be a test, none of you, how many of you went to college? None of you ever took a college course without taking notes, unless you are that .1 percentile. And if you are that, you don't have to take notes. The rest of you, there will be a test. And unless you're in the .1 percentile, you're going to hit the wall. You're going to hit the wall repetitively. The question is, how many times am I going to hit the wall before I really start to learn? You got to learn the lessons of absolute. Chapter 13, verse 1, it's going to let you into the family of origins issues of Absalom. It's going to tell you how jacked up David, the king, his dad was. Look at your Bible. Look at what it says in verse 1. This is one of the most jacked up verses in the Bible. Look at it. In the course of time, Amnon, who's David's oldest son of David, uh, Amnon, sorry, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, who's David's second oldest surviving son, son of David. Now, that's just jacked up right there. Wait, so Amnon falls in love with Tamar, his half-sister, by David, the sister of Absalom. Okay, how many wives did David have, Pastor Mike? I don't remember, but it was a boatload. How many of you believe that life is complicated enough with one spouse? Raise your hand. Now, it was never the will of God for people to marry bunches of people, but in the ancient world, they did it. And it messed everything up. Okay? Now, the story gets worse. So, Amnon loves Tamar, his half-sister. So, as time passes, it just causes him to go crazy. He's got ambitions going crazy. And then he wants to have sex with her, ultimately rapes her. This, of course, sets in motion a bunch of trouble, a bunch of problems. Absalom then plots and murders his brother Amnon. He then becomes estranged from the family. No, duh. But the bottom line and the byline of this section of biblical history, especially as it relates to David the king, is that David gets angry that his son murdered his other son who, by the way, raped his daughter, he gets angry, but he does nothing. Write that down. David gets angry, but he does nothing. David becomes very, very codependent. He becomes a very poor leader in this time of his life. And Absalom runs off of the rails. Now, he, Absalom does fear for his life, so he runs, and he flees from David in Jerusalem. So he, he flees for a while, but then David misses him. Absalom misses his dad. So, ultimately, he comes back. So, he comes back to Jerusalem, and David allows him to come back into Jerusalem, again, doing nothing for the murder, which breaks the the biblical law on a number of levels, but nonetheless, he allows him back in. Now, go to chapter 15, and we'll pick up the narrative. I just wanted you to get a little bit of the, you know, family of origins, the kind of psychological makeup of what's going on here before you read this section. Now, it's just a furtherance of the rails going off for uh, Absalom as it relates to ambitions, okay? So look at chapter 15. It says this. In the course of time, so, you know, years have passed, Absalom provided him... Now, David in this scene is about 60. He lives till he's 70. He reigns for 40 years, and then he dies. So he's an older man at this point, uh, although the older I get, the younger 60 is. Anyway, in in the course of time... Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. This is a coup. He's setting it up. This is the way in which a king would roll into the city, okay? Then it says, he would her- get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. City gate is where the leaders would stand. And look what he does. Whoever, uh, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one or of the tribes of Israel because, see, not everybody going to Jerusalem's an Israelite, okay, because it's a global environment in Jerusalem in the day. Very powerful city, lots of currency and, uh, you know, trade and so forth. It was one of the capitals of the world at the time. Anyway, verse 3, then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. But there's no representative of the king to hear you. So he's throwing his dad under the bus, You picking up what I'm laying down. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge of the world, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down to him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Uh, This sounds weird in our culture, but in an ancient Middle Eastern, and even today, Middle Eastern culture, that's how you do it. Just saying. Um, but, it, but it's, a, it's a trickery, okay? Remember, we're talking about ambitions. One of them self-centered. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice and underline this line. So he stole the hearts. He stole all the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, so for four years he does this. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. What, let me read the rest of it here. While your servant was living at Gesher in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Now, Hebron is super important. This is a power play. Hebron is where Abraham and Sarah both lived and were buried. Hebron is the territory that Abraham, Abraham bought and so that he could bury his wife Sarah there. It's a super powerful city in the history of the people of God. David is anointed king in Hebron. So so, uh, Absalom straight up lies in this passage. And by the way, uses the name of the Lord in vain. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I memorize it in the thou shalts. How many of you have ever memorized the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. Test our literacy. I memorize it with thou's. And the, the commandment here is thou shalt not take what? The Lord's name. In vain. What does it mean, in vain? It means to lower uh, the name of God in any way, shape, or fashion. Uh, This is why I would encourage you to think through the ethics. I'm a biblical guy. I would encourage you to think through the ethics of how I choose not to say, oh, my God. Because from my theological perspective, I just believe that's lessening the name of God. I just don't do it. I, I just, it's kind of a value thing that I developed a long time ago when I studied the Ten Commandments technically, and I, I, just, I just did that. And he's lying in this text, and he's using the name of the Lord in vain. And he's saying, I'm going to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. That whole thing is taking the Lord's name in vain. And David, what does he do? What does he say? Go on. Yeah, he says, go ahead. Go ahead, son. Go in peace, so he goes to Hebron. Then, in verse 10, then Absalom sends secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel, because remember, he's been doing this for four years. So he sends messengers. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. It's all a coup. It's all a coup, a self-centered, self-driven ambition. And and this this is why when you want to start thinking about your ambitions, which is what I want us to do today. Why do I have them? One of the key indicators that you have uh, self-centered ambitions is the use of the word I and the exaggeration of the scenario. If only I were the boss, I would fix everyone who has any complaint. This is what we do. This is what it looks like. I would see that they receive justice. We have a Superman complex. We have a fix-it complex. We're that guy. We're that person. So what else does it look like? What are the behaviors? Now, this is certainly not going to be any exhaustive discussion of the subject, but I hope it'll help us. I hope it'll help us kind of get on in our lives and, and see what we're doing in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. We begin convincing others is how I put it on the outline. Notice, by the way, it says, he behaved this way toward all the Israelites, and he stole their hearts of the people of Israel. What does this mean? Well, Hebrew is the language underneath the English in the Old Testament. Greek, for the most part, Greek is the language underneath the New Testament. Hebrew, this word for heart, it, 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 in, even in the New Testament, heart means, biblically speaking, uh, the mind, the will, and the emotions. You might write that down. The heart in the Bible means the mind, the will, and the emotions. When the Bible talks about your heart, that's what it's talking about. In context, here, it really means that he dupes the Israelites. Absalom dupes them. He, he's convincing them wrongly. Pastor Mike, is it bad? Is it inherently biblically, e- you know, like is it evil from a biblical perspective to persuade? What's the answer? No it's not evil to persuade. All of you persuade all of the time. How many of you are married? (laughs) You live in a persuasional pool. It's constant. If you're dating, you're living in a persuasional pool. What's the biblical ethics on the subject of persuasion? When does it become sinful? I have a book in my library called The Art of Christian Persuasion. When is it wrong to convince, when you don't have their best interest in mind, you have yours. Now, who's the king of your ship? You have you, you, you. I, 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 I. If only you'd let me rule, honey. Things would go better. Famous last words of a dead man. <laughs> so, so no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that when you become self-centered, you become manipulative, okay? And, and you become a, a lightning rod for complaint and gossip. That's what he's doing in this passage. Are you that lightning rod at your workplace? Like, this will kill your, you know, culture eats vision for lunch every day all day in every work situation and in every family and complaint. Pastor Mike gives all complaining uh, unbiblical from a biblical ethical perspective. No. Well, the Bible says do everything without complaining and grumbling, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. I know it does. Hebrews goes on and on about the sinfulness of complaint. When is it that complaint becomes sinful? It's in, a, in a nutshell, when it becomes self-driven, okay, as opposed to God-driven. There's all kinds of complaint in the Psalms. If you study complaint in the Book of Psalms, which is the Book of Songs, many of which are written by David, you'll find complaint in there, but it's laced between this trusting in God, and it's laced in this idea. When you complain sinfully, You're venting and you're corrupting the culture, and you don't have God at the center of your life. You have you at the center of your life. But when you're in a work team, one of our core values is make it better. We have four core values in New Break. Uh, Do it together, make it better, keep it accessible, and give it away. Those four values drive everything. So we, we debrief everything, but you have to see yourself as a part of the solution. How many of you are parents again? Okay, you have to teach your kids this, you must teach your kids this. Honey, there's nothing wrong with you complaining to me. It's just that when you're complaining to me, you don't see yourself as a part of the problem and the solution. You see me as your problem. I'll tell you what. No, no, you don't do that. Parents. Uh, <laughs> but you have to get them to see that they're a part of the process, they're a part of the solution. This is, you know, kind of designed with the end in mind, if you will, uh, the great leadership, uh, you know, deal. So, again, then we start behaving covertly. We start getting sneaky. He sends uh, messengers, secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel. We start behaving covertly. We start to corrupt the whole culture. We start to build power groups, little power groups. This is work politics 101. This is how you corrupt a workplace. You become like little, little uh, power-based groups where you're dividing and dividing and dividing. This is why the Bible says, warn a divisive man once, warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Divisiveness and complaints, one of the deadliest things in a workplace. Or a family for that. But we become behaving covertly. Then we assume greater authority than we've been given. It's not necessarily in this order, by the way. It's just this this is how the narrative unfolds. But as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, Absalom says, then shout, Absalom is king in Hebron. The whole way through, he's assuming authority he does not have, whether he's at the gate killing his brother, whatever, he's, a, he's asserting authority that he does not have. This is how it works in marriage. I am very egalitarian in marriage. I see my wife, Teresa, as a co-leader of my home, but I didn't always see it that way. Uh, how many of you ever heard of the show, All in the Family? There's a character in there. Archie. Archie Bunker. You can Google that later if you're not familiar with it. Archie Bunker. And Archie Bunker was my dad. That's how I grew up. This is my family of origins. I grew up with Archie and Edith. Oh, Bob! My dad's name was Bob. And, and so I grew up in a home where my dad assumed authority that was really not his to have. And so this is how it worked. We had very clearly defined roles, which is not bad. It's just it was jacked up in my family. (laughs) Like my mom and dad always both worked. So I was a latchkey kid before I understood what latchkey kids were. That was just normal. And my dad and my mom would get home from work. And the girls, my two sisters, they would have had to have prepared for dinner before they got home. But when my mom and dad got home, my mother went to work immediately in the kitchen. We boys could watch the news or do whatever we want. And my dad would sit in his chair, and someone would bring him a drink. And that same person would generally, he'd already taken off his shoes, but then they would take off, of his, off his socks for him and lay them neatly in his shoes. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but whatever. Try that. Tell me how it works. Anyway, so when I got married, uh, this is the way I grew up. So when I got married, this is the way I was. Not with the socks, but you know. Like, I was just that guy. I was totally that guy. I came home. Now, Teresa was just as busy as me working, whatever. And we, I grew up in a world where the boys did the outdoor chores and the girls did the indoor chores. Well, there really was I mean, we had to mow the lawn or something, whatever. We took out the trash. But so when I I got married, I just defaulted to this. And I just didn't know what I was about to, you know, experience. I'm trying to save you thousands of dollars in therapy right now. And it's because of this, see, I had these ambitions, these expectations toward Teresa that were completely inappropriate. I discovered that, and now this took many years, but I discovered that, that uh, in a group, like in a team, when I was in a team with her, a small group or any kind of leadership team, I would, I would jump in on top of what she was going to say. So she'd be like halfway through a thought, and then I'd jump in and tell the rest of the thought. How many of you have ever seen this happen in your lives? I won't ask you how many of you do it. I once went, uh, we used to have, we still have a guy, David Baldwin, he goes to the Scripps campus. I knew David when he was a young man. David's an amazing leader. He works in leadership circles now, he's a professional coach for business, all that kind of stuff. But in the day, back in the day, he worked for the Center of Creative Leadership. It cost $6,000 to go to a one-week experience on leadership. We didn't have six grand, so, but David got me scholarship, so I went to this event. Now, I had learned a lot of things as I went along, but this is some of the fine nuances of this. So I go to this thing. It's a week long. It's 80 people. They're, nobody's a pastor. Nobody, for the most part, is even a Christian. They're just leaders, and I go there, and it was super fun for me because so, I got to meet all these people, and they break you down into groups, and it was a competition. How many of you like competition? I love competition. It's super fun. Anyway, so they broke us down into groups of like eight. And they gave you an assignment. And the, the assignment was to compete with the other teams of eight on, an, on a, like a goal, like a strat-op on a target. And so you go in this room, you go in there for like an hour and a half. We went in there. We had the most exciting experience ever. It was awesome. We thought we were the bomb. We were going to crush every other team on the other side. We knew it. We were confident of it. When we go back into the room, you had to present. They had to choose one person. They said, oh, Mike, you need to present this. So I, go, I get into my presentation mode, right? So I go up and I present our thing. We put it up on the wall. It was awesome. Everybody cheered. Woo, woo, woo. What happened though was they'd actually videotaped the small group experience. And they had actually scientifically proven objective ways to analyze the effectiveness of each team. And ours came out somewhere in the middle, to which we were like, what? That's impossible. And then we watched the videotape. Guess who talked too much? (laughs) They all loved it. They all loved it. We, I loved it, of course. (laughs) Do you see how this works in life? Do you see how this works in you? You want things, you, It's like you want to define the world according to you. This is how it works, you guys. This is how it happens. And then you begin blurring moral and ethical lines. This is how it happens in business. This has happened in every one of those businesses that I started with. Look at the story. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says this. Now, remember he said, you know, shout Absalom's king in Hebron. Verse 11, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, notice, so they go innocently, they don't know what's going on, knowing nothing about the matter. When Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also, and notice how he's religious in his rebellion. Listen, you can go to church and worship and still be all jacked up when it comes to ambitions. As the famous poet said, we must Check ourselves before what? We wreck ourselves. Write it down. <laughs> so he sends for Ahithophel. Who's a thi- uh, Ahithophel? Ahithophel is a Bathsheba, David's wife. That's a jacked-up story all on its own. But anyway, it's her gramps. This is a power play. Okay, uh, He's a, he's a and Anyway, and so Absalom conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Listen to me. This is super important. Even, no matter what, you have, that's why you always have to check yourself, so you've got to do this all the time. You, people are going to get caught in the splash zone of your blind ambition. They will get hurt. There is collateral damage. There always is. So how is it that we fight it? How is it that we deal with these ambitions that we have in life? These goals that are not necessarily bad goals, but they can be jacked up. How do we, how do we fight it, okay? Now. The thing you must do, this is the guiding idea. I need this. You need this. I have to daily submit my ambitions to God. This is where I learn to pray through my calendar. I pray through my calendar every day. Every week, I pray. I look at the week ahead. I pray about my ambitions. Why do I want what I want? Who am I meeting with, and what is the agenda? How godly is it? And it's not that you're picking ungodly targets. It's just that there is a mix. You just have to be aware of the mix. Self-awareness is one of the greatest things you can learn in your lives. Now, I want to show you something. You live in a world, and I live in a world, where there is no such thing as absolute truth. Two-thirds of every adult that you live around, maybe you are here just thinking of the ways of Jesus, and you, you know, you're considering this. Is the Bible true? Is it relevant? Two-thirds of America, there's an American statistic, they do not believe in absolute truth. We live in an age of philosophical relativism. It is in every school, every educational uh, environment that there is in America, other than the Christian ones, obviously. Um, Or Jewish, they believe, obviously, in absolute truth. Muslims believe in absolute truth. So there are entities within American, the American landscape, that believe in absolute truth. I am just saying, we live in a world of philosophical relativism, and look at the student number. This is why you have to decide. This is where your tithes go, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Danny spoke of it. Like, are your students and are your kids in our church worth your tithes and investment? That's what it comes down to. If you want to have an impact, you get involved with Marcus and Eddie with with the students, or you get involved with Sarah and kids, you'll make an impact of of huge proportion. You want your life to matter, okay? I'm just saying you have to decide. You have to decide about this book. It's super, you know, um, profound in life. You must decide. Does this Bible have the Word of God in it? Is it uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, you and I, for rebuking me, teaching me, correcting me, training me in righteousness, so that I can be a dad, I can be a husband, I can be a grandpa, I can be a pastor, I can be whatever I am? Do, is it the guiding thing for my life? And if you're struggling with that issue, I would encourage you to talk with me about it or talk with one of the pastors about it and work this out. The Bible is the deal. One time when I was in my first year of graduate school, a seminary, and uh, I wrote a paper on the, my position of the view of the Bible. and I wrote the paper, it was 35 pages. I expected an A. I was an A student. I expected an A. My professor literally got like five feet from my desk, threw the paper like a Frisbee. This is back in the day. We used paper. Anyway, threw the paper through the air like a Frisbee, and it landed on my desk and hit me in the chest. And I looked up at him. His name was John. I said, John, what's the deal? And he goes, I need you to rewrite this paper. And I said, why? And he goes, because you wrote it from a philosophy, a perspective of philosophy. I want you to write an exegetical paper. I want, here's the driving question. I want you to write a paper. It needs to be 35 pages, and I want it to have as many footnotes as you have in this. And there was probably 100 footnotes in that paper. I want you to have as many footnotes as you have in this paper. And here's the guiding question. What was Jesus' ideas? What, what did he believe? What was his view of inspiration of Scripture? And what did he believe about the Bible? I then wrote that paper, which is how I personally came to the conclusion that the Bible is without error in everything that it says to its original audience in its original context. It was the mind of God and is the mind of God. And if you want to know how to live life as a person, like who you should date, who you should marry, who you should, what careers would you want to have, all of it's in there. And by the way, we have a couple of small groups, life groups, that are using the book Whisper. Uh, as its curriculum, so you can go out to the brown wall and find out about that, but you have to look at the ways of Jesus. Go to Matthew 4. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 4 and look at Jesus just for a minute. How does he do it? How does he keep his own ambitions in check? What's going on? You are in this scene on the heels of his baptism. It's right after he gets baptized, which is really the launch of his ministry. At the baptism, the Father tells him who he is and tells the world listening who he is. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends like a dove. He's baptized in the Jordan River. He then goes from there. Notice in your Bibles it says, then the spirit of God leads him out into the desert to be tempted. Hang on. Does God tempt us? No. The Bible's quite clear. God doesn't tempt. Who tempts? Satan. The devil tempts. What is God doing? God is putting Jesus to the test. This is very Job 1. The, God is putting Jesus to the test. He's launching his ministry. Listen to me. All of your greatness that God wants for you in your life will always be subjected to a test. God means it, and by the way, write down Genesis 50 20. Genesis 5020. What God means for good, Satan means for evil. This is the this is the one of the greatest setups ever. You, you know. So the Spirit leads him out to the desert. And then one of the funniest verses in the Bible is, by the way, verse 2. It says he fasted for 40 days, and then he was what? <laughs> Hungry. No kidding. How many of you have ever fasted? Have you ever fasted anything? You're, like on day 2, you know how you are. If you're anything like me, day 2, you're fasting everything except water, let's say. Day 2, your body's screaming at you. Your mind is screaming at you. I'm starving. Big man. You're not starving for crying out loud. Anyway, 40. One of the keys you can tell when your ambitions are going crazy is you start to take shortcuts. You start to take shortcuts. So Satan knows shortcuts. So look what happens. Look at your Bible. It says Satan comes to him and he says, if, notice, circle the word if, if you are a man of God, if you are a woman of God, if, 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 always if. He's always attacking who you are. Satan, one of his great games, is attack who you are. This is where, you're, this is where uh, everything spins around who you are. This is why one of my life verses of Ephesians 1.11. It's in Christ that I find out who I am and what I'm living. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Use your power. Poof. And then notice what Jesus does. Look at what he does. Look what he says says, what's he do? Temptation comes, what's he do? Fights it with scripture. Fights it with scripture. This is why it's got to be in you. You have to be a person of the book. The more you are a person of the book, the less your ambitions will go awry. It's just the way it is. He says, it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So it's taking shortcuts in your workplace. Uh, in, in Absalom, this is his whole problem, he's taking shortcuts outright lying and manipulating at this point, but this is how it happens. Well, Pastor Mike, I want a good marriage now. Imagine being my wife, Teresa, having to live with me. I was a piece of work, still am on any given day. It, there is no now. Whoever put that thought in our brains? Why are we so demanding? That it happened. Now. Well, that's just from the pit of hell. That's where that's from. And then also, I won't give him all the credit. It's also in our little pit we got going called our stinking Whatever. But we can't take shortcuts, okay? We can't take them. And then refuse the allure of the three Ps. The three Ps? What are the three Ps? Write it down power, prestige, and possessions. Power, prestige, and possessions. Look what Satan does. Look what he does. Look at your Bible. Verses uh, 5 through 7, then he takes him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If, notice, you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes scripture. What a trip. It is, uh, he says, he'll command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answers him with scripture, but it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, is there something wrong with power, prestige, and possessions? No, you all have them. You all have them. By the way, globally, you are incredibly rich, wealthy, 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 wealthy. You're in the top less than one percentile in the world in terms of your wealth. The poorest person. Like I have this one friend, he's homeless. And, you know, he's obviously poor, but he can go out on any corner and make, you know, 40 bucks in about two hours. And he knows how to do it. He's told me all about it. <laughs> this isn't me thinking about it. It's him. He told me how it works. He can go out any corner and in a couple of hours make sometimes 100 bucks. depends on the holidays. No, isn't he poor? Yes. And I'm not belittling that whole situation. Obviously, we, we use a lot of our Kingdom dollars dollars to help the straight-up poor, both locally and globally. Of course, we do. I am just saying, we are an incredibly rich country. My buddy can go into any hospital and get free medical care for nothing. That, ladies and gentlemen, is such an incredible gift. It's beyond our possible imagination in America. We just need to travel more. We need to be going on mission trips. You'll see it. You guys who went on the Amor House build, you saw it. So, so the key, what's wrong with power, possessions, and prestige? Nothing. It's just that when it starts to have you, you become like Absalom. Does money have you or do you have it? Does power, you all have power. Like, does power have you or do you have power? And is your power submitted to God? That's the deal. And then we have to refuse to build our own kingdoms. It ultimately boils down to this. Look at what happens in the story. Look at Satan and Jesus. Look at eight, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will buy... This is the deal with the devil. This is Damn Yankees. How many of you remember that movie? This is th- there's countless books written on the deal with the devil. There's a song. Is it by ACDC? Who wrote this, uh, is it Symphony for the Devil? Forget it. Anyway, this music, this is the deal. This has been, this is in all literature from ever. Anyway, <laughs> make a deal with me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written. What? What'd say? Worship the Lord your God and him only. Whose kingdom are you building? Where do you work? What do you do? Do you do it for the kingdom of God? Or are you just a slave to the man? Are you just like doing a job? Are you just in a position that you hate? And by the way, I would inherently call into question the ethics beyond which, behind which, you really are unhappy in your workplace. I would encourage you to think ethically and biblically about that unhappiness. Why is that unhappiness there? Is it godly or ungodly? Whose kingdom are you building? What are you doing there? What is your mission? What is your purpose? Why are you doing what you are doing? It must be God-centered, or it is by definition self-centered. You must be building the kingdom of God, or you are not. That's the deal. So I started with that one guy, Ivar Kruger. He became like one of the wealthiest people on the earth. He became known as the match king. He had one of the greatest monopolies in the history of business. He had the monopoly on Europe. America and South America on matches. They called him the match king. But it was a Ponzi scheme. He's been written down in history as the Leonardo of scam, the Leonardo of Ponzi. schemes. So what's a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi scheme is when I take your money, thinking you're investing it in something, and I pay you little pieces of it back over years. And then it gets more complicated because then I get other investors, I take their money I'm actually paying your back with their money. I'm never doing anything. Although I'm making matches, I'm losing billions of dollars. But everybody thinks I'm making billions of dollars. How is it that Ivar Kruger at the age of 52, just a few years after the stock market crash, how is it that he goes into his flat in Paris in his bedroom and kills himself? How does he decide to do that? He does it one match at a time, just like you, just like me. Ambitions. How do my ambitions take hold of me in such an ungodly fashion, one match at a time? So that's what we're going to pray about. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, here we are in your presence. We sang it. You're a good, good Father. So we know, Lord, the Bible tells us that we can trust you even when we don't understand you, maybe especially when we don't understand you, that we can trust you. And it challenges us to take all of our ambitions and lay them down at the foot of the cross upon which your son was hung, where he died for all of the broken ambitions of the world. Our history, the books are full of that. The history of broken ambitions. And we see them at work within us. Bring them to mind right now. Those ambitions that we have that are not God-centered. They're just self-centered. And this moment is, if an ambition comes into your brain, raise your hands up. Raise your hands up right now. I have to pray about this particular ambition. Learn to hear from God. Learn to kind of let him into your world mind. All across this room you can put them down, things we maybe shouldn't have done or did do, whatever. Now, are you here and your life is just not right with God? Like, there's a fundamental problem at the core. Your life is not right with God. You either have never begun a relationship with him or you maybe once did, but you haven't been in church in forever and you're just running on your own, doing whatever, and you recognize it. And you need to ask forgiveness for it and, like, Commit yourself to him. Raise your hands up. That's me, Pastor Mike. That's where I am. I need to pray that prayer. God bless you. Others. Put them down. So let's pray together. Let's all pray out loud together. I'm just going to give words to form it, okay? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have so much grace <laughs> toward all of us. In fact, everyone in the world. Your heart is for everyone in the world. That's why you died on that cross. So I just accept your forgiveness, your grace, your perspective. I commit myself to your word. The Bible, the revelation of God on the earth, help me to build everything in my life upon that solid foundation of your scripture. Is the word of God, the words from heaven. I commit myself to build your kingdom, and I pray your kingdom come, and your will be done on the earth in my life as it is in heaven, for which I will give you all the glory and the honor and the praise, in Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hand.